All right, we are at the top of the hour. So hello and welcome to season two of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident. Monday to Friday with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator of TBD Conference. Interviewing powerful people is easy, but that's not really the mouthwash way. Instead, we're exploring the less obvious elements of power this season. What's really driving the world? Who's working behind the scenes to keep the wheels on? Who's messing things up? What's hard and soft power during a pandemic really look like? Who's got power? Who wants it? How do you get it? We're exploring it all. Joining me every episode is a super smart cookie of my choosing, and tonight's cookie is none other than Brad Stone, author of Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos, and the Invention of a Global Empire. He's also Bloomberg's tech editor, which makes him a very busy bunny. Welcome to the show, Brad. Congrats on the book. How are you doing? Hey, Paul, how are you? Thanks for uh, inviting me. No worries. Thank you for doing the show. Before I chat more with you, Brad, let's talk about where we are and how you can get involved with your listening. Twitter Spaces is still a beta product, uh, so let's explore it a bit. Um, on the mobile app, the top bit is called The Nest. That's where you or I or any speaker can post any tweets you like, uh, the ones you can see. Uh, Mouthwash uses this to discuss in a section we call Desert Island Tweets, and you can click through, follow accounts, links. It's pretty handy, a unique uh, feature to Twitter Spaces. Um, you can also see all your faces and all the speakers are at the top. Spaces allow up to 11 speakers at a time, including the host. So you can really have a good chat with multiple voices, but it doesn't get a mess, which is what I find on other platforms. Um, request the mic, very simple. In any space you're in bottom left and you look at for the mic in the bottom and uh yeah and once you've got it it turns purple and you're all good you can also mute yourself uh, in case you don't want to say things and that sort of stuff um mouthwash is more of a show format so we take questions via hashtag mouthwash show but obviously you can request the mic and that sort of thing on other spaces if you want to ask a question just click on uh the blue hashtag at the top mouthwash show and you'll be taken through to a tweet put your question in and i will read them through the show and try and get as many of those answered as i can um twitter's also recently introduced a slew of monetization features so you know they're serious about spaces so try them out you've only got to have about 100 followers i think and you're you're in if you look at the bottom right of your phone screens you'll actually see some icons some dots people are heart and that sort of thing the dots are where all the settings are so if you want captions or any accessibility features they're all there and use them that's super handy um right okay time for some audience participation um please share out the space uh, join me and if you click on the icon on the right the staple with the arrow pointing up uh, click and share a tweet and you'll put it live uh, right now so if you click it click share via tweet just put live now and then i'll look at them all after uh, the space has ended just to make sure that you've all been busy working and that sort of stuff so yeah i've done mine brilliant hopefully if you can do it staple up uh, it's very very good to get people into the space not just because brad's a genius but also because for every person that we get live um, on mouthwash in season two ecology are going to plant a tree in their honor so um, tbd has been a big fan of ecology for a long time they're all about offsetting carbon whether it's for yourself or um, businesses very very simple to get involved just go and uh, check out the team uh, and Elliot over at ecology.com. That's E-C-O-L-O-G-I.com. And you can find out everything that you need. Um, also, uh, big thanks to Shell for sponsoring the show. Shell's recently published a target to be a net zero emissions energy business by 2050 or sooner. In step with society, of course. If you want to find out more about how Shell is powering progress, nip over to shell.com forward slash powering progress. Okay. Time to test the emoji button and shower Brad in a disgusting amount of emojis. If you click the heart with a plus and begin showering while I tell you more about Brad, don't stop until we end, all right? Ready, set, go. Brad's a badass. Previously writing for the New York Times Business Week and Newsweek, this Columbia grad now oversees a team of 65 reporters for Bloomberg, in between writing now four books, including the latest, Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos, and the Invention of a Global Empire. The book looks at everything, uh, how Amazon got so bloody big and made Jeff Bezos the richest man in the world. Brad's other book on Amazon, The Everything Store, won several books of the year accolades and was both a Wall Street Journal and New York Times bestseller. The man knows his way around Amazon. Covering the big guys in Silicon Valley, you know if you get a call from Brad Stone, you're likely doing something really right or something wrong. Either way, you take the call. Thanks for joining us, Brad. What was the first thing you thought of when you woke up this morning? <laughs> well, first of all, Paul, thank you for that very nice introduction. Um, uh, good, to, good to meet you. Um, what is the first thing I thought of when I woke up this morning? Uh, to be honest, you know, I just dropped my daughter off at sleepaway camp. I don't, you know, know if you've ever had that experience. And so it's very strange being out of touch. And it was probably, I wonder what she's doing now. I wonder if she's, ha I wonder if she's having a good time. <laughs> 
I bet she's having a great time. I, I, I we, we don't have camp over in the UK, but we, we go camping. And I guess that's similar sort of stuff. It's, it's always fun. Depends on, you know, lots of things, I guess. But, uh, but yeah. Um, obviously, you have a family out in Silicon Valley. Oh, wait, is it Silicon Valley you're still out or did you move? I can't remember. That's right. Yeah, so no, no, I'm in the, in the Bay Area, yep. That's right. Um, how's the last 18 months been for you? I know it's been weird over in Silicon Valley and in America in general. It's been strange, obviously, for as it has been for everyone, but I've had this strange and perverse uh, advantage, Paul, which is that I was working on a book for a lot of it and, and mm. then publicizing a book. And, you know, to be focused um, uh, was probably the greatest gift that I could have had going through these challenging last year and a half. Um, you know, I started writing this book at the beginning. Well, I started researching the book in 2017 and I started writing at the beginning of uh, 2020. So of course I didn't plan it that way, but um, you know, it was, it was very much aligned with the quarantine. And as a result, you know, I didn't have the customary fear of missing out. Um, mm. I, I was locked in my garage working. I think that's a great place to start with the books and that's something you've probably written the most prolific books on Amazon and Bezos or Jeff Bezos for his proper name. Uh, and you've interviewed hundreds, if not thousands of interviews around that company, um, employees, family and that sort of thing. I actually interviewed Elon Musk's mum and Esther Wahickey for a Forbes piece once. And I asked about um, raising billionaires. Um, you've interviewed Jeff's family and looked heavily into his early years in the first book. What struck you as important about the way he was raised and how he behaves now? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, he had a somewhat peculiar early childhood. Um, his biological father left his life when he was two or three years old, became estranged from the family. Then his mom, you know, remarried. Um, his stepfather essentially became his father. And the family moved around quite a bit. His father was a, a petroleum engineer for Exxon. And, and so I think kind of moving around a lot, um, they eventually settled in Miami where he went to high school. Um, but, you know, he also spent a lot of time because, the, you know, it was a, you know, his parents were young. They were raising his two siblings. He spent a lot of time with his grandfather uh, and his grandfather had been a, um, a regional director for the Atomic Energy Commission and had worked at DARPA, uh, the defense, uh, the Pentagon's research agency. And mm -hmm. so it just like, I think, I think he developed a really like a real sense of independence and ingenuity um, because of the peculiar circumstances around his upbringing. Mm. When uh, you, you said that you uh, researched the book for a number of years, when you were writing uh, the latest book, what surprised you most about the way Amazon operated at the start of their, you know, illustrious career versus now? Yeah. Hmm. Well, I mean, maybe what was what was surprising was how much hadn't changed. You know, you think of companies going through this arc and then becoming mature and somewhat bureaucratic and sclerotic, um, a little less inventive. You know, Bezos was pretty consistent in the early years, pushing the company to expand into new product categories and open new countries. And then in the later years, still coming to every meeting with a ton of new ideas, you know, and pushing Amazon into new industries. Um, so maybe what was surprising was the extent to which he kind of kept fighting bureaucracy, even when the company had a trillion dollar market cap and employed a million people. Mm. Um I write, uh, well, no, let's talk about that. Amazon's um, done super well throughout the pandemic, but continues to fall foul of multiple PR issues. They have over a thousand PR people working for them now out of a team of about, what, 1.5 million? Um, when it comes to workers, um, why can't Amazon get that part of its chain right? Is Amazon just above minimum wage modern day slavery or are they just misunderstood? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, no, I mean, I know, I think the, you know, the verdict is in, I don't think it's that they're just misunderstood. Um, very much by design, Bezos kind of crafted a somewhat transactional um, and difficult relationship with his employees. He didn't want Amazon to become a country club. He didn't want employees to get comfortable. He saw what would happen when you make your employees rich and they stick around for a long time. They stop trying and doing their best. Um, you know, mm. he, he, you know, and, and it's, he, you know, it, it's, uh, there's a little bit of uh, some of his colleagues have opined that maybe he didn't ha quite have the same, doesn't have the same degree of empathy. Um, but, you know, view, views like workers as a little bit of a resource and, um, and so, you know, the, the other factor is that unionization posed very, very much posed and poses a threat to the Amazon model. You know, the Amazon store is open 24-7. 
Um, there can be surges in buying that they can't predict. And so they need they need the flexibility to force workers to pay overtime, to move people around in the warehouses where they're needed. And he always saw unions as this force that could intercede between Amazon and its employees. Um, and so, you know, for a number of those reasons, um, he's crafted a set of circumstances in the in the warehouses, you know, that uh, have resulted in a lot of testimony about how difficult it is to be an Amazon employee. No, and, and look, I mean, they've acknowledged it in the last shareholder letter. He said, you know, we, we've got to do better by our employees. They've said they want to be Earth's uh, most employee centric company. Um, they've got a lot of work to do, um, but I think they acknowledge now that it's a problem and it's kind of hurt their image. So I created and write something every weekend that's called What Did Amazon Do This Week on Substack? And it curates everything the company does every week. Um, you and the team at Bloomberg cover it from a very different perspective, you know, real-time news and that sort of stuff, hardcore breaking stuff. Is it getting easier or harder to cover Amazon at the moment because of the breadth that they cover? Oh, that's an interesting question. I, I think in some respects it's getting easier. Um, first of all, I mean, it's getting harder on that there's more competition, right? I mean, Amazon used to be this sort of reclusive afterthought when it came to Silicon Valley 10 years ago, and folks generally didn't pay as much attention to it. And now it's one of the most powerful companies in the world, and there's a lot of journalistic resources being devoted to it. So in that respect, it's more competitive. But Amazon, you know, unlike a lot of other tech companies, cannot hide in the open. It employs 1.3 million people. Um, you, you know, a certain percentage of, of those people want to tell their stories. They're vocal about it. Um, you know, there are chat rooms and Facebook groups and Clubhouse and Twitter spaces, meetings of folks in the Amazon ecosystem, right? There's a lot of resources now. And, you know, there's a lot, it, the, comp the company covers so much surface area right now. Everything from e-commerce to cloud computing to entertainment to voice activated computer technology. There's just so many stories, rich stories to tell, not only about how the company operates, but how it impacts society. So, you know, we've got two dedicated Amazon reporters at Bloomberg, and then I consider myself to be a third, and then a number of other folks, um, you know, at... Uh, um, in the newsroom, either on our opinion desk or uh, Bloomberg Television, that covered as well. And and there's you know there's a lot we and there's more stories that we want to do that we don't have time to do. So I don't know. I, I think in, even though it's it can be a challenging company because they are so secretive and they can be belligerent, there are a lot of great stories to tell when it comes to Amazon. Yeah, I I um I see them having and Jeff in particular having just tons of money and influence. We saw that when um, they were looking through the vote recently um, over in Alabama. Um, yet Jeff wants off the marvelous blue marble that we're all on. Is Jeff just the <laughs> ultimate humanist and, you know, with the Bezos Earth Fund and a search for a new home for us all? Or is he just a guy that wants to go into space? Well, let's see. Um, you know, first of all, he, he's had this vision since he was in in high school he gave his valedictorian speech about space travel and it, it's never been about going to other planets or creating making humanity into a multi-planetary species that's elon musk's goal bezos has been more about opening up access to space and stimulating business opportunity in orbit you know his vision is um thousands or millions of humans living in orbit um t harnessing the power of the sun exploiting the resources of the moon. Um, and this is, you know, an outcome that he thinks will help society av av avoid stasis many hundreds of years from now. So it's a quite a different vision, um, but it has also been a childhood dream of his to travel to space. And, and, you know, to be sure, he's only going 65 miles up. It's suborbital space, the same as Richard Branson. And then he's coming back down. So he is not escaping the, uh, you know, the pearly bonds of gravity, so to speak. <laughs> They've been um, having a, a definition war, haven't they, on Twitter about what is space and what isn't space, which I find hilarious considering some of the other issues we have at the moment. But there you go. Um, genius and Bond villain are just two of the ways that I've heard people describe Bezos, both publicly and privately. Um, in your opinion, which is he? Well, I mean, I think I, I think obviously both both are somewhat simplistic formulations. I mean, he is a genius, right? We we should probably give him that. Um, you know, to to kind of conceived, you know, not just the idea that germinated into Amazon, but then to move it and disrupt several other industries. You know, that's that's a classification that only a few, you know, technology icons 
you know, in our history have, have achieved. Um, so he's clearly incredibly smart. Um, I, you know, but there's plenty of reasons to criticize him. You know, the Bond villain is generally out for world destruction. And, you know, but I think Bezos's intentions are generally good. Um, but, you know, he's had one mode, like a lot of tech CEOs, which is ambitious expansion, you know, sharp elbowed business tactics, growth at all costs, customer centric above all else. And that's had repercussions for Amazon and for its employees and for society. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't, I'd say genius more than Bond villain, but plenty of reasons to criticize. Mm, okay, I like that. Um, Jeff's still on the board of Amazon, but the day-to-day now obviously falls to Andy Jassy, um, who is the AWS superstar, um, and pretty much um, a carbon copy of Jeff, right? Um, when I was looking into him, do you think that's a fair description, a carbon copy, or, or does he differ in a lot of key ways? Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think he's a carbon copy. I mean, he certainly learned, you know, he's, he's, um, he he was Bezos's first shadow. He has worked at Amazon for you know more than twenty five years. He um, is a Bezos disciple, but they're different in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, I've talked to both of them. Jassy tends to be more personable, um, a little more down to earth, probably more empathetic, definitely more uh, interested in social issues. Has has been a has had a higher profile in the Seattle community. Um, working on issues like homelessness or even Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, Bezos has stayed, stayed away from that, either because he, he's not personally interested, because he's more focused on, on Amazon or the other things he's working on, you know, or just ha- does, doesn't want to take a leadership position on them. Um, but, but I, you know, I think they've got different styles. Um, and I think, look, you know, Bezos is the richest guy in the world right now. He sort of presents that way. He's known as the richest guy in the world. And Jassy is a little bit of a more humbler figure. He's, he's extraordinarily wealthy in his own right, but he's not carrying around the baggage of that mantle. Mm. Um, he, he's also had some gaffes and some PR issues in the past and that sort of stuff. But what are your predict- predictions for Jassy's reign? Do you think Amazon can have an empathetic leader? Or do you think, to use your words, they need, uh, what is it, sharp elbows? Yeah. No, I think I think it can, and it and it needs one. I mean, they're you know, they're employing a million people in or around in the warehouses right now, and you know they need to continue to hire at a time when there's a lot of competition for labor and a generally a low employment uh, environment, and and um, they have to compete for people. And I, I think you can't do that if you have a reputation for being a miserly employer with a difficult working environment. And so, you know, I think they realize that they have the advantage of having tremendous resources. So, you know, they can kind of stay one step ahead of the competition on, on wage, hourly wages. But, you know, people aren't going to go work for you if they think you're running a sweatshop. So I think, you know, that, that they need to kind of change that image around and show that they're invested in their employee success and show that even if your tenure in an Amazon warehouse is short, as it's kind of designed to be, that it can be an entryway into, into bigger and better things. Yeah, um, I want to talk about content in a second, but I feel it's relevant to just say, I don't think Amazon like people very much. I think that their focus on robotics and the, the rate that they're opening up new robotic factories in India and other places like that shows a real sort of delineation between like, as soon as we can get rid of your hands, mate, and make robots ones, you're gone. Because they're more effective, aren't they? They cost less and they don't break as easily. <laughs> That's certainly true, Paul. Um, well, you know, the, the interesting thing is that, you know, they, Amazon has rolled out, um, you know, all sorts of automation in, um, in the fulfillment centers, and it hasn't really quenched their, their appetite for human labor. It, it's like the, the company's needs are growing so fast that what automation does, if, if we're just talking purely in the warehouses, is it, it kind of lowers the curve somewhat, but it doesn't fl- go anywhere near to flattening the curve. You know, so in terms of, you know, these new robots that they're that they're introducing to maybe help with some of the pick and pack, um, you know, responsibilities in the warehouses, you know, that that might do a little bit to, to slow down Amazon's labor needs. But I don't I think the idea of a so-called ghost warehouse where, you know, you have no humans or a skeletal crew, um, 
you know, Amazon, unlike a lot of its competition, digital competition, still still has the messiness of uh, these analog environments. Oh, I definitely agree. They can't make the robot fingers uh, good enough at the moment, that's for sure. Um, right. Let's talk about content. Um, Amazon Prime is a huge success and a controlling lever for Amazon. How vital is making Prime Video and music for Amazon moving forward? I think it's incredibly important. And, um, you know, it's funny. Uh, I was talking with uh, Spencer Soper and I were having this discussion. He kind of disagreed with me but uh, you know my, my feeling is that shipping you know used to be the the main course in the in the prime meal and and yet you know warehouses right now are outside my city outside your city shipping is going to be one or two or three days regardless of whether you're a prime member or not amazon's just gotten that good that close to the customer it increasingly controls the last mile delivery with amazon vans and drivers and and so you know, so two-day shipping or one-day shipping isn't this differentiator. And so Prime has evolved, and it's become this kind of all-access content club to the best that Amazon has to offer. And increasingly, that's, you know, going to be Prime video, Prime TV shows and movies. Um, sometimes you can't quite put your finger on what Prime is getting you. But I think increasingly, when people try to articulate it, it's going to be the, the movies, the TV shows, and the music rather than the shipping. Mm. Um, your book came out um, after, uh, sorry, um, around the sort of same time that the uh, FTC came out swinging and are investigating the MGM deal. Um, do you think the FTC is going to nix the MGM deal, or is it inevitable to go through? I think it's inevitable to go through. You know, there's not there's not much of a of a legal case against it. You know, MGM is not even. I don't think I might be wrong here, but I don't, it's not even one of the ten largest movie studios right now. Um, and so, you know, the idea that Amazon is moving from one dominant position into another is just an incredibly hard case to make. You know, it's really difficult even to make the case that Amazon has a monopoly position in retail, right? It's still small overall percentage of retail and even maybe around 40% of e-commerce in the U.S. So, yeah, I think the FTC is is like showing a new willingness to scrutinize these these mergers. But even if they were going to bring a case, which I don't think they will, but if they did, I, I think Amazon would end up winning in court. It's just it's mm. just going to be a headache for them. They flip that percentage around for PR tactics, don't they, and that sort of thing. Which you know, oh, we're not a retail store. We we have these retail stores, therefore we should be counted as this percent. Hence, we aren't a monopoly. And then you look at retail, and you're like, oh yeah, well, you know, that's an interesting one. Very interesting they do with the numbers. But I think well, that's Biden true. Has... But but you know, we look look at what the, an appellate court just did with the case that the FTC brought against Facebook. They sent it back saying that the market definition. Um, you know, wasn't solid enough, and the FTC hadn't proved that Facebook has a monopoly in, in U.S. social networking. And so, yeah, these things are, are, you know, they're I think they're subject to debate, but ultimately a judge a judge looks at it. And that's got to be the way, right? That's the rule of law. I think that's certainly, you know, something I think the Biden administration are making clear strides to curtail the power of big corporations. But as you say, these things take time uh, and Amazon lines the pockets up and down Washington. How successful do you think they're going to be, you know, the, the, the Biden administration curtailing big tech? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I mean, the executive orders that came out last week do, do you know, they they there are a number of interesting you know, ways that they're empowering federal agencies like the FCC and the FTC to go in and, um, you know, strengthen some rules and limit the power of big tech companies and big telecom providers. Ultimately, you know, let's see, when it, when it comes to Amazon, which is, you know, where let's, let's just focus on Amazon. I, I, I think that there, I, I don't really see existential risks for the company, like in terms of like a breakup or the, the federal government slowing down Amazon's rate of growth. I think there's plenty they can do to, to limit maybe some of Amazon's more controversial business tactics, its most favored nation pricing schemes, um, or, or the way in which it might look at third-party uh, seller data to craft a private uh, label strategy. But you know, to, to just get back to the core point, like to break up, to break up Amazon, to, you know, to, to bring a, a significant broad antitrust case against it, you have to prove it's a monopoly and that it's unfairly wielding that market power. And I think that's going to be difficult to prove.
Yeah. yeah. You mentioned yeah. privacy there. Um, technology is another area where Amazon draws ire for overstepping, pushing the boundaries of privacy. Um, despite, like other companies saying that they are pushing privacy all the time, um, only this week the FTC approved Amazon patent for a radar sensor, which is going to, quote, <laughs> contactless sweep tracking functionalities. Um, in your opinion, where's Amazon's head when it comes to tech? Does it have to be an all-knowing data-sucking entity, mm-hmm. or is it more nuanced than that? Mm. Well, I mean, I think they're, you know, they're trying, they're, they're trying and they're trying quite feebly, in, in my opinion, to kind of get into this wearables game to cre- create devices that, you know, that people want to wear that um, tell, give them interesting or informative information about their health or their sleep patterns. Um, the problem is, unlike Apple, you know, Amazon doesn't have a smartphone and, and generally the smartphone tends to be kind of the, the center of this, these ecosystems. Um, you know, they've designed this halo band, which was basically a, a flop. Um, and, and so, you know, they're, they're, they continue to work on iterations of that. And the, the sleep tracking radar was, I guess, part of another version of, of that. But, but generally, you know, Amazon's a company that throws a lot of things at the, at the wall. It's very decentralized. It's how the company operates. And so a lot of these efforts don't seem to be, you know, that like strategically conjoined. And so I, I don't view it as sort of an all-knowing, you know, sort of evil, uh, highly coordinated, hyper-intelligent and slightly devious company that's taking all of our information. If anything, it, it, all, it seems like a lot more chaotic and inept. And, but they are very good at like identifying, you know, new technologies and trying to op, trying to get an edge by by um, weaving those into their their latest devices. And you know that approach most famously worked with Alexa, right? Bezos identified, and this I tell the story in my book, that the speech technology was just on the verge of getting good enough, and you know he created a voice activated speaker around that. So now they're looking for the next thing that's now finally feasible. And, you know, use Amazon's manufacturing and logistics and sale, you know, sales channel advantages to go get to the market on that thing first. But I don't know. I mean, I t- look, I'm someone who's got a bunch of Alexas in my house. And, you know, if they wanted to be listening to me, they could be. But, you know, I, I guess personally, I kind of like dismiss dismiss that. Mm. Well, let's stick on Alexa for a second. It's, it, as you say, a huge success for Amazon, um, partly through deals, I think, partly through novelty, partly through utility. Um, it's being built into new homes, fitness trackers, microwaves, clocks, um, but it's also growing up, I think, thanks to things like Fire TV. Where do you see them taking Alexa next? You've said that it's been a bit of a flop with the wearables, but the glasses, that seems to be the sort of next iteration of computing. But even those seem to be a little bit like, Ish, at the moment. The yeah. Apple moment will eventually come, but that won't be part of Amazon's um, makeup. So where, where do you think Alexa's going next? Mm, right. I mean, I think what they've been trying to do recently with only mixed success is to move it into appliances, home appliances. And so you've gotten, you've seen the microwave. There's this idea of an Alexa wall clock, an idea of an Alexa home robot. So it's, it's I think, um, disassociating it a bit from the speaker and they've sold tens of millions of those and maybe saturated the market a little bit um, and, to, and to making it more of a standard across homes in automobiles, um, you know, and, and then, as, as you say, in, in wearables. So um, it's sort of the everything else category right now. Um, again, with mixed success, like <laughs> you haven't seen them come out with another Alexa microwave. Um, <laughs> but... Um, uh, I, I don't know. In, in some ways, I, th- I feel like maybe they're a little strategically adrift now on the Alexa front, right? They, they, they hit a, a huge home run with the speaker category, and now what, right? A third-party app ecosystem hasn't really developed around it. It's still a little bit of a novelty in people's homes. It's a great speaker system, um, but beyond that, you know, they're still trying to find an application. Yeah, I, I forget what it's called, but there's the crowdfunding element, which Amazon seems to be going down, i.e. they'll throw out an idea. If enough backers happen, they'll make it. That that feels like a really interesting sort of space for them to play, especially when you consider Amazon's often put on a pedestal of genius and all powerful. But they mm-hmm. failed royally with, you've already mentioned it, the Fire Phone. Right. And they're also not doing super well with gaming. That is a, definitely right. an area where they definitely need to win. Why do you think those went sp- so spectacularly wrong? What, what do they tell us about Amazon? Mm-hmm. Well, the Fire Phone, and I tell this story in my book as well, was just a, a, a faulty um, intuition from Bezos about what customers would, would want. He had a, a 
ambitious technical vision that took way too long to uh, to execute on. The phone came out late, and um, and basically Samsung and and Apple had kind of carved up uh, the ecosystem. And, and then Amazon's always been disadvantaged by the fact that um, if if it's not taking uh, Google's version of Android, it doesn't get the Google Play Store and all the all the key apps like Google Maps and YouTube. Mm. Um, so, you know, there were some strategic reasons it failed, and then it was also kind of just bad product market fit. On games, and we've written a lot about that at, at Bloomberg, um, you know, it's there's a number of reasons. One, the, this gaming studio is always part of Amazon Web Services. So, you know, arguably it should have been, and it now is, part of the entertainment part of the company, but it was in AWS, so sort of mismanaged from that standpoint. And then I think there's something to the fact that, like, gaming is a creative endeavor, right? And you need, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not just engineering. Um, they're artists who develop games. And Amazon has never been the province of, of artists or, or, or creatives. Um, you know, in, in, in the book division and prime video division, they work with those types. But generally, they bring a very science-oriented, systematic kind of mindset to it. And um, I think that's one reason why, you know, they've sort of wandered around in, in video games. with not a lot to show for it. Yeah, they're certainly spending enough money on there, and they keep pausing things. There seems to be a rabid appetite for what they're creating, but they're not creating it to a standard that the, the, the people sort of need, which is very different, a very sort of weird scenario to find Amazon in, because normally they kind of nail it. So it's an interesting sort of where, where they're sort of like going. Um, we spoke earlier, or rather you mentioned how broad the company is getting. Um, it's pushing into the next trillion dollar industry, healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think the future of in this area is for Amazon? They're already making insulin. They're layering foundations for telemedicine nationwide in the US. Um, will they be the disruptive force in healthcare that they've been in retail? Or are these two industries so far apart that parallels can't be made? Well, you never want to count Amazon out, right? I mean, they, they do do a good job of exerting exerting their tremendous resources and their their way of their unique way of operating, um, the leeway they have from investors, um, and their and their technology advantages to move into new industries. And we have seen that um, again and again, and, and most recently in in grocery stores where they're now opening all these Amazon Fresh grocery stores and. And uh, don't do not seem to be deterred by by anything on that front. So there's a certain bullheaded relentlessness that you can kind of count on. And I do think of all the various things that they're trying right now in healthcare. I mean, the two most interesting ones I think are the Amazon Pharmacy, and of course they acquired a company called PillPack, and you know, marketing that more aggressively to Prime members, um, to Whole Food customers, or Amazon Fresh customers. You can you can see where they could make inroads there. And then the clinics, you know, they've got this network of walk-in clinics that they've opened for some employees. I think it's in Texas. And there's a telehealth service too. And just rolling that out to employees and trying to get some companies to use it as well, you can kind of see them making an impact. So I don't know, it's, it's competitive. And Microsoft and Google and Apple are all looking at that too. So I think collectively, tech industry will be effective at disrupting healthcare. And then the question is, which of those companies are going to be the most successful and I don't know. I mean, you can they they all have different advantages, but I think I think uh, you know Amazon is determined that it's the next big growth opportunity. Mm. Putting on my paranoid tech, somewhat writer, somewhat analyst sort of hat on for a second. When you think about what Amazon owns, which is now Amazon Fresh, so it knows what you eat, what you uh-huh. buy, and perhaps even when you're feeling down, thanks to Alexa. Uh-huh. Um, you've also then got scanning um, Alexas in your house, which can tell you if you're wearing something great or whether you're putting on weight, for example. <laughs> um, you've also then got things like um, the healthcare, so it knows if you're flipping up your medicine and that sort of thing. It might even have your um, health uh, results based on who you've spoken with on their telemedicine. This feels very distinct dystopian to Uh other people and can be quite scary where does amazon think uh that they're going to end up in the pr game with this that that's a that's an that's an overstretch from someone who used to just sell people books (laughs) it's certainly they have come a long way from the book selling days well you know some of those projects paul that you just described they've they've shut down um i i think the I might be wrong, and, and there's so many Amazon products that they're they're hard to keep straight. But I think one of the yeah the devices that you were just describing, um, the the thing that sort of sort of 
trying to evaluate um, how you look or what you're wearing. Well, I think that was called Amazon Look, and it was look, a yeah. yeah, and it was a it was an Echo speaker with a, a video display, and it yeah. didn't didn't go anywhere, and they shut it down. And and part of it's just you know market reaction, but part of it is um, I think is is the overall reaction and and, and market feedback and. You know, there was one element of the Halo wristband that I think you also mentioned. It's supposed to tell you whether you're overweight or not. And, and you know, they made that optional. And look, but the Halo wristband never went anywhere. So, you know, to describe this sort of all-powerful dystopian vision, I think, you know, omits some of the nuance, which is that the, the company sort of blunders into, into a lot of these different categories. And it's not. Yeah. It isn't uniformly successful. And, and it does listen to feedback. Um, I, I think that, you know, the last Bezos shareholder letter shows how respect, receptive and worried they are about a poor public image. And so, um, yeah, I don't I don't see the kind of all powerful Orwellian data aggregator quite yet. Not 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 with Amazon, at least. Mm. There's part of me that 100 percent agrees with you. I think they are stumbling their way into like successes to, to a degree. Mm-hmm. But then there's also a part that says they are just throwing stuff against the wall, seeing what sticks. And then yeah. at the end, they'll feel, form it all together. And it'll be like, oh, there it is. There's the danger, you know. Right. So I, I think it's kind of interesting when, when we sort of factor all of this together and you look at the company that they are becoming, that the consumer journey almost takes you through to death almost. And it's like they, they just need to do a coffin. They've got right. you from life. You know? <laughs> Amazon dot funeral but you know we're also in in a world now where we all carry around smartphones and they've got the computing capacity of the supercomputer of yesteryear and they all have microphones and they all have cameras and you know there are cameras in basically every store restaurant environment that you go into now and it's like i guess i guess you know hearing myself talk now it's almost feels a little bit like you know what like get over it right privacy is dead and um you know and and these companies if they they have a lot of data on us and they you know but it, but if it's abused you know they're held to account and they suffer mm. for it and i think amazon you know is aware of that that you know that it is so far into the crosshairs right now of governments and, and the press that if they were to abuse their position and misuse any of this information they would pay a steep corporate price Speaking of which, I don't believe there has yet been a number that is a steep corporate price compared to the billions that they make per quarter. I would love to see it. And I think that would be an amazing thing for the FTC to put across their bow. But they simply don't have the power and those laws need to be sort of rewritten. Would that be fair to say? Or is that an unfair? By by steep corporate price, I was also talking about just the the, the way in which their customers view them and, and, you know, whether this, this reservoir of trust that they've built. You know, the company is, is, you know, does rank pretty highly among kind of most admired companies, but that's a, that's an asset that they could lose. But then if you're talking about a, a fine, you know, from the EU or the, or the FTC or the state AGs, no, I, I mean, I think you're right. Like we've seen Google, you know, swipe aside some of these fines that have been levied against it in Europe. None of this, these companies are so big, none of them are really enough to significantly make a difference. Mm. No, definitely. All right, let's um, turn our attention to the future. Um, a lot of senior Amazon execs and knowledge um, are bailing out now that Jeff's gone. What does this mean for Jassy? He's inheriting an incredibly successful company, and I think it's fair to say a bit of a public PR shit show at the critical time yeah. for the future growth. What does that look like for Jassy? Does he need to surround himself with new players? He's you know, already rejuggled the, um, the S team um, mm-hmm. over the weekend. But um, does he need to bring in new players or does he, does he have everyone that he needs? He's just got to rearrange. I mean, I, I think obviously there's a do- downside to losing so much talent. They have lost a lot of institutional knowledge. Um, but, you know, the, the, the bench is deep and... Um, what, what they pride themselves on in Amazon is, is not the specific talent, but the system. Um, and, you know, that we, we all know the, you know, the sports teams that will say similar things. But, you know, Amazon executives are trained in a certain way of thinking and a certain kind of operating. And, um, uh, you know, and so it's sort of next person up. And um, it's still a pretty coveted place to work and will continue to be as, as long as that stock price is headed upward. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, you know, they've lost some people. They've lured some people back. Um, you know, Jassy will have to prove himself. It's also true that Bezos isn't really going anywhere. He's going to be executive chairman. 
but but yeah. in general, like the mom, the corporate momentum is so strong. That's good or bad, depending on how you view it. But um, you know, no one is anywhere near catching Amazon in terms of of broad retail. And Amazon's right there in the thick of it with uh, Microsoft and Google on this massive and very rapidly growing cloud business. So you know, there's there's a in a lot of ways, I think you know. Bezos has given Jassy a gift. He's really set him up to succeed for a long time. Yes, I think there's a double-edged sword as well coming for that, but it will be interesting to sort of see. I, I was particularly interested to see this weekend that um, one of the head of the UK um, Amazon team now wants to head up the uh, NHS, which I was like, oh, how interesting. Um, so, yeah, very, very um, interesting times, I think, for a lot of the people who are bailing out and also who are sticking around. Um, if you had to pick one or two things that um, were Amazon's secret to success yeah. or have had most impact in their success, what would those things be? Or is it just good customer service? No, I mean, I think it's like at its heart, it's Bezos's ingenuity and inventiveness. Um, you can't dismiss that. You know, he yeah. he 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 spotted the the internet opportunity in 1993. Um, you know, a little bit before almost everyone else, and he built a a, a business on it, and then and then he kept spotting new opportunities. Um, you know, and that was to expand into other product categories, or go to Europe, or um, you know, eventually it was AWS. Uh, and then the Kindle, and then the cloud business. Um, oh, yep. And then Alexa, voice activated computing, and 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 even like you know spawning the opportunity of streaming video. Um, Netflix was already doing it, but Bezos integrated Prime Video into Prime. What in like 2010? Right. I mean, he very he see he saw these things. He saw around corners in a way that I think Am- set up Amazon to succeed for a long time. That that would be, I guess, the key ingredient. Um, just sticking on that uh, thing for one sec, Black Widow obviously came out this weekend in theatres and via Disney Plus if you wanted to pay, I think it was $20 and that's sort of thing. Do you think Amazon could use Prime Video to repeat that success with hybrid theatre streaming blockbuster movie releases? Or do you think they're just not the same sort of powerhouse that a Disney um, slash Marvel feature would be? I mean, they don't have the intellectual property, which is one reason why they bought MGM. You know, that'll give them a couple of different assets from, uh, you know, James Bond to uh, Legally Blonde, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, I think that obviously they weren't in a position to succeed in the way that Disney has. Um, and, you know, and they're playing catch up in, in some respects. Um, they've, al- they've also had, I think, some dysfunction and in Amazon Studios, their Hollywood arm, and, and you know, and Bezos got it, it, it very involved. And you know, sometimes a billionaire is not the best arbiter of mainstream taste either. Um, but you know, they've got some interesting things coming on the pike. Um, they've got the Lord of the Rings TV series, which could be big. And then also, you know, you met you mentioned um, a B- Black Widow, and yeah, I guess that is making a huge splash in theaters. But Amazon had did have a success recently. What is it? Was the Chris Pratt movie? Um, I haven't seen it. You remember what that's oh, called? Tomorrow War. Yeah, Tomorrow War. Right, right. Which apparently has done quite well. So, yeah, the the the, the platform is now big enough where they can mint some hits, and and then I suppose the big question will be, um, you know, can they right? Can they can they move them into theaters and and and, and they've done that with some of their in, indie movies they've acquired. Um, so I I think they probably will be able to uh, duplicate that sort of success. Mm. There was talk that they were going to buy AMC, wasn't there, at one stage? There, so there all these things. Yeah, and then I remember like investors ran out and bought um, the wrong AMC stock. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. It tells you a lot about that, but anyway. Yeah. Um, Right, a couple of last questions. Um, they will, um, Amazon, uh, incredibly successful company. The book is an absolute um, dynamo for the little sort of nuggets that um, make their success um, really sort of bring it to life. Um, but they're not without issue internally or competition externally. What icebergs are there that you see ahead for Amazon? I assume unionization would be one of them. Uh, sorry, what what obstacles? Uh, what icebergs do you oh, see? Oh, icebergs, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's see. Um... I mean, we talked a little bit about unionization and, and the, yeah. uh, the eyes and collective attentions of big unions like the Teamsters are, are laser focused on Amazon right now. At, at, at the moment where we've got a pro-organized labor president in, in the United States and a lot of momentum, um, I, I think that could be a challenge. You know, you limit some of the flexibility of this company to respond to changes in demand, seasonal fluctuations, um, and... Um, 
you know, and, and, and um, yeah, I think that would be challenging. Um, a stagnating stock price that leads to more turnover. Um, Amazon compensation is very much uh, stock equ- equity, equity based. So I think that could be a challenge. Um, and, and then I think maybe this idea of like Bezos moving away more permanently and Amazon losing its innovator in chief, the guy who has seen around corners. I think that is a little bit of a risk for the company too. I definitely think that at the moment they can't really afford to lose Bezos like publicly, but I think behind the scenes, they're going to want a you know, a win that they can clearly say like, wasn't Brett, um, uh, Jeff, so that they can say, we're still here without him, you know, keep the money coming. Exactly. Um, they are currently worth 1.6 trillion and they're employing almost 1.5 million people. Amazon's a force for any government to contend with. India's finding this and flexing its muscles with the law. Amazon's expensively pulling out of China, although they still have a presence there. Um, but India looks to be the challenging territory that they're, you know, they've got to get right. But thanks mm-hmm. to new legislation that's proposed, that's looking increasingly tougher. With Walmart and Target still going for them at home turf advantage amazon never had it tougher right in india uh and in the u.s i think right i mean india was is yeah it's, it's um yeah was is it interesting because they've invested so heavily and and modi who really looked at for a long time to be a partner to international businesses who he wanted to invest in india um to shore up his his uh political base really um just shifted and and really became more protectionist prime minister and now amazon and walmart are encountering a lot of challenges um there um in the in the u.s i mean look it's amazon's home base and um you know business has never been better for amazon and um you know despite despite the challenges the antitrust challenges no i i, I again I, I just don't see it as, i just don't see it as, as existential at all for the company right now mm. So you think they're going to win in the US, but elsewhere they'll have issues and that sort of stuff, which I think is absolutely fair at the moment. Um, you obviously cover Silicon Valley as well over at Bloomberg, and you have previously with other books talked about the upstarts and that sort of stuff, mm-hmm. Airbnb and that sort of thing. It's a really interesting place at the moment, I think. Lots of change, lots of new things sort of coming through in the pandemic, throwing up lots of opportunities. Um, who are the companies that you're keeping an eye on at the moment or that are exciting you? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, um, you know, we're right in the middle of the storm here. And uh, obviously, uh, you know, it's um, every every it's quite a just fast moving industry right now. I mean, every week, I think my answer would be different. The 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 the, Chi- the Chinese government's cracked down on Didi and other Chinese companies that have listed in the, in the West is fascinating to watch right now. Um, yep. You know, Didi is, you know, we used to call it the Uber of China. Increasingly, Uber is the Didi of, of the U.S. It's just a massive company. Um, and, you know, to watch the Chinese government um, really, you know, come out against their homegrown heroes, not just Didi, but Alibaba, and Tencent, has been fascinating. So we're spending a lot of time looking at that Um know green green tech companies we've got a great a great new area of coverage at at bloomberg bloomberg green which is you know covering not not just interesting clean tech companies but some of the false promises of the like world of carbon offsets and and the like and that's been fascinating to watch um and then in terms of startups in in the u.s i mean anything green you know electric electric cars, electric trucks, the Rivian story has been fascinating to watch. Um, I, I'm, I've been taking a personal interest in some of the uh, flying taxi or flying car startups like Joby um, uh, in, in, the, in the U.S. And, and like the promises they're making to remake cities. I mean, some of it seems like pie in the sky, science fiction dreaming. But if, it's, mm. if it does work, I mean, it has the power to not just fulfill like some sci-fi dreams, but to really change how we get around. So that's interesting to watch. I I, def- I agree. I think the pandemic's been a reset point for a number of things, and certainly the autonomous car uh, industry certainly being one. Um, what is the next book about, and what's making <laughs> your brain jiggle at the moment? Well, Paul, you know, no- nothing, nothing on the drawing board right now. I still have to kind of recover, I think. Um, but, but you know, we're one week away from Bezos going to space and fulfilling his childhood dream, and um, you know, it'll be a big public spectacle. And so, um, you know, personally, that's kind of what I'm preparing for. Right, I'm with you. Okie doke. Um, folks, it is time for Desert Island Tweets, the part of Mouthwash, where usually the guest picks um, a tweet or two that's changed their mind or way of thinking. But Brad I says I'm going to pick one. 
um, of this year. <laughs> I so um, I thought this one was apt. Let me just um, uh, throw it up. So if you, um, what do you call it? Go to the nest. You should be able to see it in a couple of seconds. It's coming up soon. It's just taking a while, apparently. But yeah, here we go. Um, it is from an account that I follow, and I absolutely just... Every day it makes me smile, okay? The account is called Has Jeff Bezos Decided to End World Hunger Today? All right, so it's at Has Bezos Decided. Mm-hmm. And the idea um, behind it, it's uh, it's got over 100,000 followers, including Greta Thunberg. And every day the parody account checks to see if who uh, Jeff Bezos, who has a net, uh, net worth of over 200 billion, has chosen to end world hunger, which the IFPRI says could cost 11 billion per year. Um, I think it's just a, an interesting account that shows the power that one man has in a world, but also, you know, power, parody accounts on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and what people can really do when they set their mind to it and become a bot and that sort of stuff. There's lots of other stuff to check out on that account. So follow them. Um, it is a well-followed um, account and that sort of stuff. But it's um, sobering stuff, which uh, I think is something to ponder as we leave the conversation tonight. Um, thank you all for being part of Mouthwash. Brad, any final thoughts or advice for the listeners when it comes to the power of Amazon? Well, first of all, thanks for the opportunity, Paul. Um, no, I mean, it's, it's like this is a, is a company. I think it's one of the most iconic companies of our time. It's a, it's a story of ingenuity, but it's also a story of, of like unfathomable economic power. And that's why I've written now two books about it. You know, it's, um, it's exciting. I think there's a lot to learn from Bezos and Amazon and, and perhaps uh, some, some things to avoid as well. Definitely, definitely. Okay, folks, that was episode uh, what were we, seven of um, season two. Thank you for listening. Um, how do we do? Let me and the world know by using the hashtag Mouthwash Show. I am thrilled to have an amazing cohort of brains joining me for season two. I've curated a bevy of smart folks from Babylon Health to Beauty Stack CEO Sharmadine Reed. We also have a Kung Fu master, uh, Seafood Julian Hitch, coming up tomorrow talking about soft power. And later we have an uncertainty expert slash pirate, Sam Conniff. So make sure you check out mouthwashshow.com for full details, downloadable calendars and links to previous episodes which are now also a very sexy podcast thanks to the folks at Spotify, Apple Music and other quality podcast platforms. Once again my thanks to the uber smart Brad Stone if you haven't already, buy the books, they are an absolute insight into a company that you all need to know more about. Uh, Also subscribe to What Did Amazon Do This Week if you google it, it comes straight up. Um, The books are a unique look inside a company that that many try to emulate and understand I think it's important that people do figure out where Amazon is going as well. Um, Find out more about Brad's work also over at Bloomberg and at brad-stone.com. Please show your appreciation one more time with a shower of emoji for Brad as the lo-fi music plays us out. Thank you again for joining and thanks to the geniuses over at Ecology for planting a tree for every listener we get in season two. Come back every day, we'll be here. I've been Paul Armstrong. This has been Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you more confident only on Twitter spaces. Thanks ever so much. I'll see you all soon. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.